Good morning. Um, I dealt with a little bit of technical difficulties earlier this morning, so if I run into a hitch, please forgive me. Um, but it's good to be in front of you all. I hope you all had a good Thanksgiving. Happy belated Thanksgiving to you. We are at the end of our um, series in First Thessalonians, <clears throat> what it means to be the church and, uh, and how uh, being the church inherently means being countercultural. Uh, we're not trying to be countercultural for countercultural sake, but it'd be cool. But to be the church is to not be of the world. And to not be of the world is to be anti-world, thus countercultural in our at least living as a result of our view and our worldviews. And what Paul is doing at the end of this, um, I, I believe it's just one long kind of reminder as he's, he spent this letter rejoicing over the fact that the church in Thessalonica has been so faithful um, and, and so consistent in their perseverance. Uh, even in the midst of trial and persecution, it's hard enough believing and following Jesus. Amen. Uh, and to, to do that in the, in the wake of persecution is even more reason to rejoice. And Paul is elated over that. And so he leaves them now with this reminder of what it means to be the church. And I, I've titled this sermon, Siblings That Belong to the Day, because of something he said previously. I cheated a little bit. It comes not from this passage today, but it comes from the passage that our brother Mario preached last week, which the heart of that passage bleeds into the heart of this passage today. And what Paul is addressing is that Jesus is going to return. And it's something very interesting, <clears throat> even for the believer, when the mention of Jesus' return is brought up. It gives us some pause, and I think some necessary pause. It stops us in our tracks of uh, all the things that we have been chasing, all the things that... Um, have occupied our mind space. And I think if it doesn't, it at least should have us ask the question, what matters to us? Really? What are the things that matter the most? What are the things that we're always thinking about, the things we're always talking about, the things that evoke emotion from us, the things that if we don't get, change the way we see the world? What matters to us? I remember when I was at this worship night one time in Baltimore, um, there was just so much going on as far as conversations, kind of like today. There's so much to talk about. And there was this woman that went up, <clears throat> she sang a song, and she didn't have this song prepared. She kind of just went up there and played on the keyboard and kind of sang in the spirit, as she said, when I was speaking to her. And this is what she said. She said, when he cracks the sky, Nothing's going to matter. So stand with me now and help me fight this battle because people are out here dying every day and they're not saved. Thinking about all the things, all the things we've elevated to this place of significance that will immediately drop to insignificance when Jesus cracks the sky and comes again. And the heart of that song is what she's saying for the believer is a broken heart over the fact that when he cracks the sky, there are going to be people who know who he is and he won't know them. And it's heartbreaking when you think about that. 
I can't help but to think about the cousins I grew up with, who I love, my boys that I grew up with in Baltimore that I love, who don't know the Lord. And when it comes down to this bride, this fellowship, this church that Paul is mentioning, there's a title he gives it that's so beautiful. Those who belong to the day. Not the night. The day. The light of the world. Those who, when Jesus comes again, they won't be shocked. Those who once had all these worries, maybe all these disappointments, maybe all this evil committed to them, won't even have time to reflect on it in that moment because they'll be so captivated by the bridegroom coming to take them home. And so now, for our passage today, what he is saying is that what should matter most for those who belong to the day is that we may be sanctified completely and kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. That there would be no chance that your fellowship amongst believers, attending church, reading Bible, all that stuff, would not just be actions. But it would be a direct response or a desire to be molded and conformed to the image of Christ. Here is the main point of this that I want you to take from this whole passage. The main point is that the church, those who belong to the day, has been called and privileged. Called and privileged with the opportunity to conduct themselves in a way that shows that they are ready for Jesus' return. And it's not so you can show the world, I'm ready. It's because when you live in such a way, the world looks on and glorifies the Father in heaven. <clears throat> and as we conduct ourselves in this way, this picture that unfolds, are men and women, tall, small, big, yellow, black, white, green, brown, whatever it is, cleansed by Jesus' blood, standing together, waging war on the kingdom of darkness. Through these very unconventional things like offering forgiveness to those who slander us, engaging in conflict in a healthy and loving way, telling each other the hard truths that we would veer away from the path of destruction, carrying those who are weak and needy, being patient with one another. All the while, people who look on see this beauty, even if they don't want to admit it, and have to wonder why. This is what it means to belong to the day. That picture in and of itself is fellowship. That's what the church is. That's what this is, fellowship. That's what our gathering here is. That's what community is. That's what the 3Ds are. It's this picture. And so this is the goal that I want you to take. I want, to, I want, you, I want to make sure you go home with this. That the goal for those who belong to the day <clears throat> is to live in accordance with the word of God. It's so easy not to. It's so easy to not want to. To live in accordance with the word of God for these three things. One, 
our respect and view of the pastorate, the shepherds he's placed over his church. Two, our fellowship with one another. And three, our public and private worship. So the shepherds he's placed over his church, the fellowship, and our public, our biblical practice of public worship. Let me start with the first point here. Starting with verse 12. We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. If you're anything like me, especially when I was living as a wretch, the word jumps out from this passage over. I was thinking like, there can be some discomfort with that word. I think there are two reasons, maybe main reasons. I think there can be more, but two main reasons. There can be some discomfort with that word. One, someone who was once over you probably abused that authority in whatever way. Or two, your pride. I think those are the two main ways, two main reasons that that may stick out, but I'm going to break it down for us because it's important that we see it. Paul says to respect those who labor among you. What's implied is that, hey, the ones I'm talking about are true pastors who are actually doing the work among you, and they're doing it for you, for your edification. They're not the ones who want to be seen doing work. They're not the ones who talk about doing work for the fact that people can lift them up and say, oh, you do great work. <laughs> there are these two kind of classifications of uh, the pastorate, I think, in our generation today. A uh, fancy word is clericalism. And another fancy word is anti-clericalism. You got one part of it, clericalism, that says, hey, I'm the pastor and I'm going to do all the work. I'm going to do all forms of ministry. I have all the authority, all the power, and everything will funnel through me. Every ministry arm in the church will funnel through me. And that comes as a result of not having a biblical view of what it means to be a shepherd, one. And it also comes from a sense of pride and an unbiblical view of self and what it means to be a servant and serve the church and equip the church and the, work, uh, the saints for the work of ministry. And then you have the other view that says, well, look, man, it, it, we don't really need a pastor. Maybe this is from the broken camp, people who have been hurt or people who are just prideful. And they say, we don't need a pastor. It seems redundant. I mean, there could be somebody who, like, you know, stands over, resides over the different things that we do. But Paul said in his letter to Corinthians, we all have gifts. Having a pastor is redundant. We don't need this. And you have two toxic things that happen as a result of these two thoughts. On the first thought, you have the guy that's in front doing all the stuff, and he's doing all the stuff so people can see him do all the stuff. And then you have people who are called to be pastors who are looking at him do all the stuff, and their only calling consists of this. Man, I want to be that guy. All the attention and all the flattery. Meanwhile, the true biblical calling of the shepherd being the lead dyer for the sake of the bride is lost on us. And then you have the ones that say, hey, we don't need a pastor. And then you have a pastor that actually acquiesces to that and says, look, I'm not really going to be a pastor over you. I'm just going to kind of reside over these things, and you have sheep led astray. Possibly a church that's not a church. And Paul says to hold 
this office in high regard because of the countless work that they do. Sometimes that work is manual labor. Sometimes that work is not manual labor. It's the conversations and the, the praying and the studying, the interceding that's not seen. What does it mean for the pastor to be over you? This Greek word, proistimi, it's used of other things like a, a landlord or an estate manager. I found that to be interesting. Because landlords and estate managers is just one person kind of being over this property, this inanimate thing. And I think that's quite beautiful. Because their role isn't just responsibility for the thing, it's care. It's upkeep. Someone comes back to their property with a landlord there, and it's a mess. They say, what have you done, or what did you fail to do that you would care for my stuff? Is that not the office of a pastor is? But I think it's even better than that. Because this same word, this shouldn't be a shocker, is used of guardians of children. And it's not necessarily uh, in reference to the child. It's a reference to the parent's love for the child and how the parent tirelessly serves the child. But then also how the parent admonishes the child, especially in love. If you love your child and they're reaching with a sharp metal thing towards an outlet, you'll never laugh and say, that's so cute. You'll yell no. Only out of love. The pastor given to the church admonishes. <clears throat> I think that when we think about this in our view, of pastors, do we hold it in the regard that it should be held? Do we have a respect for it? And I'm not talking about the, the, the ones who pose and the ones who um, or fall away in some way. I'm talking about the office itself, the fact that the Lord has structured his church to have one who's responsible to care and serve and admonish his bride, that they would be sanctified to completion. That is coming. Do we examine ourselves? We have this deep desire. Do you have this deep desire for sanctification where you find it unacceptable to be led by a pastor who's not going to tell you the truth? Do you hear admonishment and does it push you away? Because Paul gives an anti- uh, antithetical list of this when he's talking to Peter, uh, Timothy in 2 Timothy. He tells Timothy, hey, keep preaching. Whether it's in season or out of season, do it with all patience because guess what? People are not going to want to hear what you have to say. When it comes to sound doctrine, when it comes to what the scripture teaches grounded in truth, they're not going to want to hear it. 
juxtaposed with this list, as for you, those who are in the day, hold in high regard the office of pastor who toils around you, serves you, and admonishes you in love. Don't despise your pastor. Don't flatter him either. Respect him. He's been given for your sanctification, but it doesn't stop there. That's just not the role of a pastor. Let's go to the next part. Be at peace among yourselves, and we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. See that no one repays evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. This love that the pastor has for the sheep in order that he would admonish is the same love that the siblings have for one another. If you look at this list that Paul highlights, and the only thing that comes to mind is conflict. And this kind of like romanticized view of relationship, a good relationship doesn't have conflict, right? It's false, probably. Christian fellowship inevitably breeds conflict. Conflict isn't the indicator of unhealth. Response to it is the indicator. And how do we respond? Well, we admonish, we comfort, we help, be patient. And in the response of evil, respond with love, with loving kindness. We're honest with ourselves, right? We're a church. A lot of us probably see other people as problem people. And then those people probably see you as a problem person. That's just the way humans are. Paul says, admonish the idol. Comfort and help the timid. Help the weak, but in all be patient. This perfectly fits what we do in community, or at least are called to do in community, in our 3Ds, our fellowship with one another. Admonish the idle, those who are unruly, those who are divisive or insubordinate, who are living in a way that the scriptures says that you are not to live. If you are called to walk and uh, obey Christ and you live in such a way, your siblings say, hey, not that way, this way. Or to say, hey, this is what we're doing here. This is the picture of fellowship and you're actually dividing it. You're breaking it right now. Or they're just not doing what they ought to do. Where we're growing knowledge of the Lord, we don't want to be in fellowship with one another. We don't have disciplines and Bible study and spending time with the Lord. We don't confess. We don't forgive. And as siblings, we're watching and saying, hey, in love, I admonish you. Insert admonishment there. No one talks about that. But then what else? We're comforting. Are our communities not filled with those who are strong and weak? And those aren't better and worse. Those aren't synonyms. It's just a reality. There are Christians among you with a mature faith. Christians among you with a less mature faith. There are Christians among you who have been through trials and have come out stronger because of the grace of the Lord. There are Christians among you who are currently going through trials and will be strengthened by the Lord. There are Christians among you who are more difficult 
to love. Christians among you who are more easygoing. There are Christians among you who are more physically capable. There are Christians among you who are less physically capable. How do we deal with this? Patience. Why is that significant? Because if you are admonishing people, if you are helping people, if you are lifting up faint-hearted, if you are giving up your energy to those who don't have the energy to do for themselves, you will inevitably begin counting down the watch of how long do I have to do this. I told this person already that they shouldn't be doing it. They're not listening. Look, I've encouraged you. You've been so faint-hearted and so broken and tired. I mean, how long are you going to be hurting? The timid, maybe in community, are the ones who haven't been showing up. Or maybe they show up and they're just quiet. They're not engaging. They sit to themselves. And for the ones who's the extrovert, it's like, look, let's get the pot going. I mean, why aren't you engaging? To those who belong to the day, that's how we just treat each other. Patience. I had a conversation with a believer who's very, I mean, they have an incredible ministry, an author, an apologist, um, and it's very successful. And I point that out because they're at a church where the expectation is, look, you're a very prominent Christian and we expect for you to be a part of this ministry and lead this and lead this and lead this, but they've been through some church hurt. Multiple occasions. And they're tired. They haven't given up. But I was talking to them and they said, hey, look, it's been going on four years that me and my family have been at this new church and I still sit at the back row with a distant eye. I don't, I, I don't think anything negative about them. I don't think anything negative about the people. We've been there almost four years. I'm just hurting. And the gratitude that they had was a result of this. They said, instead of everybody constantly begging me to be a part of this and this and this and this, they've been so patient with me. They've been so patient. Isn't love patient? Where have we read that before? Isn't it fitting that we would resemble our father who in his patience felt it necessary to withhold his wrath that we would be made children of his? It's conflict in fellowship. How do we handle that conflict? Well, we engage each other with the truth in love. We help the weak. We help the timid. We comfort the faint-hearted. And in all, we are patient with one another. Where do you need to self-examine in this? Have you been admonished and as a result walked away? Have you been the admonisher and are lacking patience? Are you lacking love? Is it self-righteous? Have you a, large, a high view of your time? So therefore, you don't give yourself away to your siblings. 
Is there something you need to confess? Is there something you need to forgive? Is there something you need to seek forgiveness for? Examine yourself thoroughly before the Lord. Engage those things with one another. Because that's the heart given to us by God that shows itself in our fellowship. It's loving, it's patient, it's truthful. But that same heart is the heart that we have in worship. It goes on. And by this heart we pray, rejoice, and love every form of goodness. Verse 16. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Do not quench the spirit. Do not despise prophecies, but test everything. Hold fast what is good. Abstain from every form of evil. The gathering of the saints in our worship is a posture of the heart. I think that's important for us to recognize because sometimes we can come without even considering what the posture of our heart is. We can be together. We can be here in our public or private worship, whether we're by ourselves or with a few brothers and sisters, and our heart really isn't right, and we don't think two thoughts about it. Because what's important to us, I guess, is the outward motions. Let me just show people I'm doing the good Christian stuff. He says, to those who belong today, this posture shows itself in your rejoicing. A couple things about rejoicing. I think that some people have abused what this means. I think that people have not made space for people to hurt and be sorrowful. Be actually faint-hearted in this text. He says, look, look, I mean, you can't be sad or you can't be sorrowful. And, and then maybe out of even a good heart, they say something that's positive. Oh, well, they're with the Lord now. No need to be sad. But that's, they're, not, they're not directly related. That's more like happiness, circumstantial. We're humans. That's a natural thing. Rejoicing is an eternal perspective. Our emotional response to things, that's a direct circumstantial perspective. You can have a sad and sorrowful direct circumstantial respect perspective with rejoicing in your heart. I think we see it in Scripture. Thinking on the fly, uh, Stephen, he's being beaten to death. I don't think he was, he wasn't laughing while that was happening. But his eyes fixated on Christ, rejoiced over the reality of being with him. There's a difference. When the circumstantial is elevated to where it should not be, then when it doesn't go our way, our perspective of the eternal changes. And we become cynical, self-centered, stagnant in our faith. And Paul is saying to rejoice. This is what he was happy about. The, the church in Thessalonica, they're being torn apart, yet their rejoicing remains. For those who belong to the day, you have a reason to rejoice even when your immediate circumstance is tearing you down. Always rejoice. Keep your eyes fixated on Christ. Always be praying. Be consistent in your fellowship and communion with the Lord. Then he talks about the cynicism. 
not, do not despise prophecies. Real quick, contextually speaking, the public uh, gathering of the saints involved prophecies where uh, this is not something that belonged to the Old Testament office of a prophet. It was a uh, term used for those who have a spiritual gift of encouragement, exhortation, or just admonishing in the truth. They'd stand and they would share with the church the truth from the scriptures, an encouragement about the church for their edification, or a truth that's needed to get them back on the path of righteousness. And then the heart of the cynic, so now we're talking about the word of God. The heart of a cynic, when the word of God is preached, is just saying, uh, whatever. I know from experience. I grew up in church as a cynic, unsaved wretch, just sitting and listening with disdain and cynicism. He says, don't despise prophecies. But then he goes even further. Don't be gullible. Test everything. We can either hate what the word of God is saying, or we can just eat up whatever someone is saying. And what we've been afforded as children of God is to look at his scriptures and hear anything that someone is saying, the Lord is saying, and test it. We can test it. That's especially important in this social media and digital age where so many voices are made available to us. Test, test, test what you're hearing. Why should we care to test everything we're hearing? Because then you will know how to discern good from evil. That's why they're related. Do not quench the spirit. Don't despise prophecies, but test everything. Hold fast what is good. Abstain from every form of evil. How will I know the difference? By testing everything. So many people are led astray into things that grieve the Lord because someone told it to them and they just accepted it. Or people are led astray into living a life that's grieving the Lord because someone sought to admonish them in the truth and they rejected it. If our deepest desire is to be conformed to the image of Christ, then when someone says, here's something that'll help you be conformed to the image of Christ, even if it stings, gratitude would naturally flow. I just had a conversation with someone yesterday who said, hey, me and my husband, when we first got married, we told a member of our church that, hey, we're not going to have kids because we'd rather just spend time with ourselves. And the, the person they were talking to just said, have, have you guys like sought the Lord in that? I'm not saying it's unbiblical to not have children, but this desire you have for your life, is that a response of you're dwelling with the Lord or did y'all just get married and think your marriage is your own? And when she was telling me in this conversation, she said, I'm so grateful that they told me that. You know how many fights that would start? How many beefs? I'm never coming back to this church again. I'm never talking to this person again. But if the desire we have is to be conformed to the image of Christ, then we can rejoice and we can be grateful in all circumstances. In our public and in our private worship. Because the whole point is that the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. And that our whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ.
our preaching, our Bible study, our fellowship, our gathering, our service, our communities, our meals, our 3Ds. That's not a list of the things Christians should do. It's a response of being siblings of the day. If we indeed are siblings of the day, then this is the way it looks. Conflict exists. It should. We're human. The way we respond to the conflict is beautiful. It's that where the onlookers look. That is what the scriptures are talking about when it says, let your light shine so bright that they see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. When they're seeing conflict, when the world sees conflict, the world says, this is how you should handle conflict. Hate, spiteful, vengeance, rejection, broken relationships. The people of the day say forgiveness, loving kindness, gentleness, patience. When evil is done to me, I respond with good and loving kindness. It's otherworldly. It's other cultural. That we would be molded to the image of our Lord Jesus Christ. And prayerfully, that people, as they're looking at our relationships, would say, why are you doing that? And the gospel would be fresh on our lips. what it means to belong to the day. Siblings of the day. You are brothers and sisters. Do not forget that. Paul gives that reminder that Jesus is coming again. All the things we've lifted up into significance, when he cracks the sky, it's not going to matter. Let's stand together now and fight good battles in our fellowship because we're siblings of the day. Every single week we are reminded of this through our taking of communion. And I want to remind us with something from Ephesians 1. I think the slide might say 1 Thessalonians. This is coming out of Ephesians 1, verse 11 through 14. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. There is no doubt for the siblings of the day to whom you belong and what will be the case when you crack the sky. All of the trials all of the worries, all of the anxieties, all of the beef that you've had with people when it cracks the sky will go away and we will be too busy beholding his glorious beauty. We have that promise in us and we're reminded of it by taking the bread and the cup. We know that we are siblings of the day because his body was broken for us, that we would be healed and through his divided flesh, we are united as siblings. And the blemishes that we may experience in community together, the conflict, they're temporal because we are redeemed through his blood, washed clean, every blemish removed from us through Jesus' blood. And we're reminded of it week after week. So before... You take, if you haven't already taken now, 
reflect on that and examine what do you need to either repent of? What do you need to confess? Is there a sibling you need to go and be reconciled to? Spend that time with the Lord and be reminded of what it means to be a sibling of the day. And let's dwell as siblings together. Amen.